0: So I mentioned to you guys, I I came to faith in college and uh, didn't know much about the Bible. And so as I started reading the Bible, you come across, you know, uh, cities and locations and places and and all of that. And and my personality, at least, I don't know if any of you are wired like this. uh, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree at Beersheba. What did it look like? Where was the gate where he planted it? Where was the well? What was around him? Um, Jesus walked on water in Capernaum. Which way was the boat going? Where did it land when it came ashore? What city did it leave from? Uh, Mark chapter 2, these buddies dig a hole through a roof to lower a, a paralytic friend down before Jesus. What was that like? How big was the house? How many people were in it? Long story short, I finally got to go to Israel and walk the land. 2007, hike in the land, walk in the land, lost my mind. Spent the majority of the time trying to figure out, how can I get back? And so thanks be to God, I've been 19 times to Israel walking the land. We now lead tours. So if you want to go to Israel, let's go. We're going in November. And we lead tours. And if you can climb it, we climb it. If you can swim it, we swim it. If you can pelunk it, we pelunk it. Uh, So we're going to read about uh, David hiding from Saul in the caves of Adullam while reading the passage David wrote in the caves of Adullam, in the caves of Adullam. So it's just experientially, you're just like, I see it. So the beauty of going, by the way, and you don't need to go to Israel to know your Bible and to allow the Spirit of God to enlighten your heart with the text. So don't don't worry, you could Google it and it's all good. But when you go, you just, you just have a different picture. And one of the things I realized while I was there, by the way, is you can grow anything in Israel. I mean, if it can be grown, they grow it in Israel. In fact, uh, if you've ever had um, um, they, they have a Oh, I'm trying to think of what it's called now. I'm choking on the name. They grow these cactuses out in the desert. Uh, have you heard of netafim irrigation? If you're from Cl- uh, Fresno, rather, the, the f- like the uh, factories right outside of the airport. Uh, but it's an Israeli company, so they got drip line everywhere. They grow all kinds of stuff. they got all these cactus they're growing. They, ca- they grow pomegranates and dates. Uh, they grow wheat and barley. They've got olive trees, of course. If, if you can grow it, they're growing it there. And I remember walking, I go, you know, it kind of feels like Fresno. I mean, the, the temperature is kind of like Fresno, and it kind of, the topography, or Central Valley at least, right, the topography is kind of like Fresno. I wonder if I could grow that food back home, and I thought, man, I spend all summer in my house in Fresno trying to keep my grass from dying because it's 140 freaking degrees. I should grow some food, and so I decided I, I was going to come back after my Israel trip one year, and I, I'm, I'm going to be a man of the land, and so I ripped out all my grass, and I don't know if any of you ha, have the same sort of like if you're going to go and do it, go big. And so I went big. I've got 13 grapevines. I've got uh, eight citrus trees. I've got three peaches. I've got a grafted cherry, a grafted apricot. I've got a fig. I've got a pomegranate. I've got blueberries. I've got like a side job is basically what I've got. And um, I learned the hard way, though, in Fresno, and I don't know if it's like this where you live, but uh, in Fresno, if you want to plant a tree, you can dig down about 12 to 18 inches, and then you hit something called hard pan. Y'all know what I'm talking The Bethany guys know what I'm talking about. You hit hard pan, and it is unbelievable. I mean, literally, sparks from your shovel hard trying to get through this stuff. So uh, I called my dad. I go, hey, I need your help. I went down to the little rental store, and I bought one of those, like, gas-powered augers where two dudes hold that thing, you know, and that thing's just, like, grinding. And we're, like, standing there for what felt like about 10 minutes waiting as it's trying to make its way through this layer of hard pan. And once it popped through that layer, though, it went flunk. I mean, that thing was just gone, right? And you realize if you want to plant something that has any fruit bearing to it, you've you got to break through that hard pan. Because most guys, and if you live in Fresno, you know the sidewalks are all popping up. And the reason the sidewalks are popping up, because the developers don't care. So, like, I'm not digging through that hard pan. Just plant the cher- or plant the tree, rather in the 18 inches of dirt right there, and the roots don't break through the hard pan. They stay shallow, which means they pop up all the concrete because they don't care. And I'm thinking, okay, I care. I want good fruit. So when I planted my fruit trees, I dug four feet by four feet by four feet graves for these fruit trees. I've got the, well, it's a little overkill, I admit. I've got the best planted fruit trees in the valley because I wanted the good fruit. Now, I share that with you because I think it sets up where I'd like to go. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark 12. In Mark 12, Jesus is going to quote the most common quoted passage in all of your Hebrew Bible, Deuteronomy 6. He quotes the it's commonly called the Great Commandment. And we're going to look at Mark's account, and I think his account is interesting for a number of reasons. A little bit of backstory. So, um, obviously, we have four gospel accounts, And if you've ever read Matthew and you're like, all right, now I'm going to read Mark. You're like, okay, and then I'm going to read Luke. You're like, wait, I've already read that. They're called synoptic gospels because they're very similar. And Mark's gospel, though, is unique. Mark is almost in a hurry. He uses the word immediately over 40 times because he wants you to just, like, get to the point. He's showing you all the things Jesus did. Jesus was a servant, so he did this, and then he did this, and then he did that. Well, who's Mark and who got him his information? Because last time I checked, Mark was not a disciple. So Mark is John Mark, who actually went on the first missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. Now, if you remember the first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul starts taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and Mark grew up in Jerusalem. So Mark's a little uncomfortable with those people coming to know his God. By the way, racism is not a new thing. It finds its roots all the way back into our Bible. So these guys were struggling with an ethnocentric gospel, Paul goes to the islands first, preaches the gospel. People come to faith. Gentiles come to faith. He has an encounter with some magician. John Mark wets himself. He's like, I'm out. John Mark deserts him and goes home. And if you remember the second missionary journey, there's a battle that happens between Paul and Barnabas as to whether or not John Mark should go. Paul calls John Mark a deserter. He says, get that kid out of here. He chickened out and left when things got hard. I'm taking Silas. I'm out. You take him. So Barnabas did. And Barnabas introduced him to a young man, not so young at that time, by the name of Peter. Now, Peter was a guy who understood a little something about failure, don't you think? See, Peter's the guy who denied Jesus three times. Peter's the guy in John 21 that got restored by Jesus three times. And now John Mark, the one who just failed, is introduced by Barnabas, the encourager, to Peter, the failure, who got restored. And so he spends time with Peter. Peter disciples John Mark, and while they're spending time together, John Mark, known in your Bible as Mark, says, tell me about your time with Jesus. And he goes, well, Jesus did this, and he did this, and he did this, and Mark writes it down. That's the Gospel of Mark. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're getting Peter's words. Now, the reason that's significant is this Great commandment is mentioned in uh, the other two synoptic gospels. It's mentioned in Matthew 22, but it's a little different than what's mentioned in Mark. If you're looking at your Bible, Mark 12:28 through, I think, 31. Um, when you read through that passage, I want you to notice um, one of the scribes in verse 28 asks him what commandment is, for, is foremost of all. Jesus then answers, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God the Lord is one. And then he says, uh, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Now it's unique, Mark's version from the others. In Matthew 22, um, it's only, Matthew only records love God with your heart, soul and mind. Uh, In Luke, uh, it includes heart, soul, mind and strength. The original Hebrew didn't include uh, strength. Uh, The Latin Vulgate didn't include part of it as well. This is a unique picture that Peter uh, records for Mark or gives to Mark to capture, and there's four parts to it, and this is, I think, significant. So when you read Mark's account of the great commandment, what are the four things that he says you should love the Lord your God with all of your what? Okay, so heart, heart, second one is soul, and then what? Mind, and then strength. I'm not sure if you can read that, but hopefully uh, you can. And if not, you'll at least get the concept visually. So love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, there's a sense that what this is is a recognition of who God is, right? The Lord is one. It's a quote from Deuteronomy. So every Jewish listener would have been like, yes, and amen, Uh, Jesus, or excuse me, God, rather, is exclusive. He's preeminent. He's prominent. There's no one like him. And you need to commit your life completely to following him, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, it says that it's a scribe who asks him the question. So we have to ask the question who are the scribes? These are guys that were experts in the law. 613 laws in your Old Testament, and these guys nailed them all in their own mind. These were the guys who knew their junk. And they're asking Jesus a trick question. This is not a legitimate question, and I'll show you why here in just a moment. This is a total trick question. Which of all 613 is the best? And what Jesus does is does a little bit of a mashup. He says, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quote from Leviticus. So he takes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus and smashes them together. Now, I think this is interesting for a number of reasons. I think Mark includes something here from the heart of Peter to show us a little picture of what true following of Jesus looks like. Because, by the way, when Jesus came on the scene in the Gospels, he never called people to make a decision to invite Jesus into their heart, to become anything He invited them to follow him, and by following him, the Hebrew term is the word talmidim. It's the idea of to be a disciple. It means you don't just know what the person who's discipling you knows. You actually live like they lived, and so when he calls them to follow, the idea is a complete reorientation of life, and what Peter captures for us is the words of Christ saying that in... The most important commandment in all of the Bible, the most important thing in all that is written is love of God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what does that have to do with planting fruit trees? Well, let me show you. I think it's interesting, and and maybe it's only in my context. I don't know. Maybe this doesn't connect to you. But do you see a distinction spiritually between what I'll call above-the-line spirituality and below-the-line spirituality? Like If you look at most churches, most Christians, most discipleship programs, whatever, it's above the line stuff, is it not? Uh, Christianity is sort of, I don't know, minimized to mind strength. You might say it this way, know, do, believe, behave, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, where Christianity can be minimize too, and I don't think this is a good way to do it, but this is what we see, just know what the right thing is to do and do the right thing. Don't worry about why you're doing it. Don't worry about what source of doing it comes from. Just know what's right and do what's right. Know, do, believe, behave. That's above the line Christianity. And that's prevalent, very, very common and very popular. Now, if you look back in, uh, up at uh, verse 13, you're going to notice a couple of people. In fact, let me turn to Mark's account here so i make sure I'm at the right place. We're going to end up in Ephesians uh, chapter 3 here in just a little bit, but I want to show you the setup here. So if you look at verse 13, you're, you're going to see some players here in this account that are uh, of note. Who do you see in verse 13 of Mark 12? Who do you see? Talk to me. Pharisees? Anybody else? Herodians, who are those guys? Okay, the Pharisees are like old-school religious legalists. These are guys who expressed devotion to God by doing what was right. They were predominantly above-the-line guys. Herodians were kind of sellouts. They were guys who uh, loved God but wore a toga. Okay, they loved the Jewish things, but they loved the Roman things too, so I kind of want to play in both worlds. Look at verse 18, who do you see? Sadducees. Sadducees were another religious group predominantly connected to some of the priesthood um, in that day. Typically affluent religious guys who really cared about protecting uh, their position, their place of authority, etc. And then you see in verse 28 who? Teachers of the law. Some of your Bibles might say scribe. Why is that significant? Look, the, the, the Pharisees... The uh, Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes are the teachers of the law. These guys could not agree as to where to go to lunch together, let alone agree on anything theologically. And if you read through the account, it's a tag team match. Any of you grew up watching old school WWF? Not WWE, like old school WWF. Like Randy Macho Man Savage, the Junkyard Dog, um, Andre the Giant. The Iron Sheik. I'm talking old school guys, right? Do you remember those tag team matches? So one guy'd be out there, he's getting a lung beat out of him, and the other guy's like at the turnbuckle reaching, like, come on, make the tag, make the tag. And then the guy would make the tag, and sure enough, you know, here would come Jimmy Superfly Snooker or whatever else, you know? This is a tag team match. And all four of these religious groups are in common opposition to the work of Jesus, and they are coming at him. And these guys are all above-the-line followers of God. They're all about knowing and doing. How do I know that? Because Jesus comes after them in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm just going to quote some Matthew here just for a moment. Matthew 23:13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, and you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse fifteen: Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel around the sea and land. You make one proselyte, you make them, you make them become. uh, You make when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Verse twenty-three: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law of justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides. He says, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean up the outside of the cup uh, and of the dish, but on the inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. He comes after them. Why? Because they're above-the-line guys. No, do, believe, behave. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right belief, right action, if you will. They're not integrated In their relationship with God. But you don't just follow God with your mind and strength. When Jesus called people to follow him, he didn't simply call them to say, hey, I want you to follow me and know what I know, and then just live like I live. Don't worry about the source of it all. Don't worry about your motivations. Don't worry about your heart. Don't worry about your soul. Just know what's right and do what's right. And so Jesus judges these religious people pretty harshly because uh, in some ways, They had missed the point of love of God. The purpose of the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole purpose of the great commandment is to live an integrated life as a follower of Jesus. Now, it is easy for us to look at those scribes and those Pharisees and just go, those guys, man, they missed it. And I'd say, guys, be careful, because I don't think we're too far behind Because when you talk about men, especially dudes, following God, and I go, hey, how's it going following God with all your heart? guy's like, what are you talking about? You know, get all bowed up. What do you mean following? I'm not a sissy. I'm not following God with my heart. If this is a women's conference, women would already be crying. (laughs) All of our heart, amen, yes, you know. But guys, we we have a hard time integrating. We have a hard time getting below the line. And uh, in some ways, I would say, hey, there's a danger in planting a fruit tree that doesn't go below the the hard pan. And the the danger is you don't get deep roots that will allow the fruit to really grow. It's going to be shallow. It's much like if you think of the parable of the sower, the person who the seed lands on the rock, it sprouts up immediately. But as soon as heat comes, it fades. That's why a lot of guys, by the way, come to camp. They're all fired up. That's right, man camp. I'm going to hit the reset button. I'm not going to be the idiot I was last Thursday. It's a new me. And you're like one six-pack away next Friday from being the same idiot you were last Thursday. And I don't say that to shame you. I want to invite you into something different. Because those guys are guys that are above the line guys. But if you don't allow your roots of your spiritual life to go below the line, if you don't break through that hard pan, then you're never going to bear fruit. And you'll, you'll do okay and then... Difficulty will come and you'll collapse. And then you'll do okay, and then difficulty will come and you'll collapse. Over and over and over. And if you can relate to that cycle, one of the things that might be happening is you're not an integrated man in terms of your relationship with Jesus. Let me give you a couple of problems with below-the-line spirituality and see if maybe you can connect. One, as I mentioned, is they're short-lived. It is short-lived. They're short-term fruit of being an above-the-line follower of Jesus. It's like a New Year's resolution. It's like a camp high. And without integration, it will never last. Second, above the line, Christianity is powerless in the battle against sin. Powerless. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul puts it this way in Colossians. Uh, <laughs> That's when you take Colossians and Galatians together. It makes Galatians. Colossians <laughs> chapter 2, verse 23. He's talking about those who have moral fences, don't taste, don't handle, don't touch. Uh, He says these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But these are, he says, of no value against the battle of fleshly indulgence, the Above-the-line spirituality is not going to be able to fight sin. So, look, you can, you can have all kinds, and here's what that looks like practically. You can have all kinds of boundaries. All right, look, I don't look at anything on the computer unless I'm in the living room, and I don't, I don't, um, you know, I, whatever, whatever your rules are. Whatever your issue is, you can have rules. You, you know those kind of things, right? Like, oh, okay, I don't watch these kind of movies. I don't hang out with these kind of people. I don't do these kind of things, these are my triggers, so I avoid that. And that's good, but it won't deal with the deep-rooted issue of sin because sin is a heart issue. So all you're doing is modifying behavior. Which is the model of Christian spiritual formation by and large? Just modify behavior. So let me just look at your life. go, okay, okay, let's clean that up. Let's clean that up. Let's clean that up. Okay, good. There, now go. But that's not transformation. Third uh, issue with above-the-line spirituality is it tends to be transactional. It's not transformational. So your time with God becomes box checking, not transformation. What we talked about last night was transformation. If you're going to open your heart to God and go, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And then you just kind of sit there and wait to take it on the chin. That's not a transaction. That's transformation. Because I promise you what God has begun in you, God will be faithful to complete. But above the line, spirituality is all about the transaction. Hey, look. Pastor, I go to church, okay, I came to man camp, all right, I read my Bible now and again, what? I'm in a small group because she wanted to. I share sometimes, what? I'm saying, guys, I, I appreciate that. That's not transformation, you're checking boxes. And checking boxes will not allow you to live as a follower of Jesus that experiences what Jesus invites us into, which is called the good life. See, Jesus said in John 10, I want to invite you. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, I have come that you may have life and life abundant. Jesus did not call you to modify behavior. That's religion. He never called you to that. He did not call you to simply clean up your actions. That's religion. He never called you to that. He said, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Above the line spirituality, there is no rest because you're never done. And it's all about you. It's by your strength. So you're just working your backside off to be better. And that's just a religious treadmill that is exhausting and fruitless with no joy. Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the joy of the spiritual life. So if you've ever looked around at other dudes who seem to have something you might be missing, I wonder if they're below the line and you're not. I wonder if they're integrated heart, soul, mind, and strength and you're not. Now, can we just identify the fear that comes when you're staring into that cavern of below the line emotion, feeling, Talking about your past, your heart. Guys are like, I'm out, dude. I am out. And I said, well, that's where you're going to find the love of God. That's where you're going to find satisfaction in Christ. That's where you're, you're going to actually find the power of the gospel. Because I don't think Jesus um, quoted this by accident of showing us maybe a better way. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if you have your Bibles as well, turn to Ephesians 3 just for a moment. What I'm trying to show us is the love of God. Ephesians 3, I want to start in verse 14. Because I think this, this great commandment is an invitation to embrace a God who has already loved you and is waiting to embrace you as one whom he delights in. And Paul captures this in Ephesians three fourteen and following. I'll just read it. It says, for this reason... And the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within Him, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. He's trying to show us what it means to love God with all of our hearts, to experience. The word heart, by the way, is the word cardia, and it has the idea not simply of like you're sappy and cry all the time. It has the idea of the inner source from which everything proceeds. Uh, Think of it like uh, the seat of your will, the seat of your desires, the seat of your affections. It's sort of the uh, seminal point of all motivation comes from your heart, and uh, Proverbs puts it this way, to watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. So, for example, uh, if you've got a masturbation problem, you don't simply have a lust problem, you have a heart problem. The issue is not the work of your hands, no pun intended. The issue is the work of your heart. If you've got an anger problem, you don't have an anger problem, you have a heart problem. Something is broken at a heart level, and so you act that way. That's heart Proverbs 27, 19 says, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. One of the reasons most guys would rather stay above the line is it's easier, it's more manageable. I can control it. Some of you guys have had moments where you went below the line for a bit and you experienced the love of God at a heart level, or maybe uh, you experienced love in and of itself at a heart level and, and it was overwhelming to you and you felt a little out of control. A little out of sorts, a little vulnerable, and you're like, uh, and you scrambled back above the line. You're like, that's weird down there. I don't like how I felt. I don't like that I felt. And so you want to stay above the line. That, that's the heart. So what is then the soul? The soul is your, for the sake of a better term, by the way, there's dudes with much bigger brains than myself that have written extensively on this. So I'm giving you a little summarization here. But it's almost like the eternal God-created identity in you. Um, the Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, said that God has placed eternity in your hearts. It's this, the soul is this idea of like this divine thumbprint, this breath of God, this, um, this hunger or appetite. But it's a spiritual sort of side of you. It's a deeper God-designed, God-created, God-given ability to long for something to hope for something. Um, and what's interesting about this relationship with Jesus is being a follower of Christ requires integration to be fruitful and successful over time. Uh, and the spiritual life is energized below the line. So if you found yourself frustrated with the above the line stuff, it's because the real motor is the below the line work. Pardon me, deep transformation, deep change. That only happens because of God. So the psalmist says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's below-the-line language. If you're an above-the-line spiritual guy, you're like, just tell me what's right, and I'll do what's right. Give me an accountability group and a list of 10 things we're not supposed to do, and I'll check the box. You don't taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not even on your radar. You don't even know what that feels like. It's like speaking another language. But I would say that what Jesus is inviting us into is joy that's found in Him, where He is experienced, He is delighted, where we um, sink deeply into Him and find purpose and beauty and meaning, etc. To love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, I think it's worth noting that most, as, as I mentioned, most. Spiritual formation programs, most churches, most Christian education programs, most discipleship programs are really focused on just the knowing and doing. And so the question then is, how do we begin to enter in below the line? And by the way, it doesn't mean we don't need above the line. So when Paul says, uh, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, we need that. Uh, when uh, Philippians 4.8 Paul says, uh, finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellence, and worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on those things. We need the mind, no question. And there's no question that we need the strength to walk out this Christian life, to be laying aside of the old self, putting on the new self. But what I want to suggest to you is there is a greater joy and a greater fulfillment in a life that's integrated. Turn to one more passage, and then I'll wrap us up. Turn to John 15. John 15. John 15, by the way, one of my favorite passages, uh, verses one and following, because I think Jesus gives us in in this transitional moment a little snapshot as to what, from a metaphor standpoint, what, what living integrated with Jesus actually means. Uh, Keep in mind, at the end of chapter 14 of John, they just finished the upper room. They break bread together. They enjoy communion together. They leave the upper room. They're walking in transition. Chapter 18, verse 1, they end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. So what is said in 15, 16, and 17 is said in route from point A to point B, after the upper room before the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, teaching in typical Jesus fashion, fashion, is walking by uh, on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, a garden, looks like a vineyard of some sort, and he says this, John 15, verse 1. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. By the way, the, word, the phrase takes away is the word I wrote. It means also to lift up. So, this is a debated passage. Some people are like, that's right. If you don't bear fruit, God cuts you off. I push on that a little bit. I don't think that's consistent to the heart of God in Scripture. He raises you up, he lifts you up. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, and here it comes now. Abide in me, and I in you, verse 4. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Did you hear a word repeated? My Bible said abide. What did yours say? Abide. Remain. It's the word "meno." It means to abide, to remain, to sink deeply in. Think of it this way. Jesus is saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who sinks deeply into me and I into him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Think of that metaphor and connect the dots to this picture. Jesus is saying, Uh, If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. To sink deeply into him, to remain in him, is to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's to do the hard work to get below the hard pan in your life and experience now a breakthrough into your heart and soul. Why do guys, um, why do many guys avoid that? Why do they fear that? I mentioned it already. It, it's uncomfortable. It's unknown. It feels a little chickified. It feels a little sissy. Most guys spend a long time creating a persona of being hard, a persona of being tough. Real men don't cry. Where the heck do you read that? And the invitation that I think Jesus is giving us is saying, guys, we're playing a different game. This isn't a game of you trying to be impressive. This is a game of you being godly. This isn't a game of you trying to put on a persona or an air to be someone you're not. This is about you being like Jesus who says, if you want to abide in me and I in you, you're going to bear much fruit. The work that you're going to do to break through that hard pan of hurt and of shame. Most of us, by the way, have these wounds in our life that happen below the line where you got hurt, your dad bounced on you, or worse yet, beat you. You had things that happened to you. Somebody violated you. We take those things and we lock them up in a box. And we just say, I am never opening that box ever again. I will die and no one will ever know what's in that box. And we kind of think that's like, that's the way you survive. And I don't think that's how you survive, at least not spiritually, because the only way to really experience healing is to allow that box to be opened in the Lord into that box, and that hard pen for some of you guys is thick, and it's going to take a lot of work for you to break through that, but I'll tell you what, it'll help your marriage, it'll help your parenting, and more importantly, it'll help your relationship with God, because you cannot know and enjoy the love of God above the line. All you get above the line is shame and guilt. All you get above the line is religion, and yet the rich reservoir of the love of God is waiting for you below the line, heart and soul. And I think that was the invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. If anyone wishes to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to follow him below the line, to be integrated, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the invitation that you give us to move into the unknown, to move beyond the realm of just knowing and doing, to move beyond the realm of just religious expression, this treadmill of behavior modification that has just plagued the faith for decades. God, you invite us into something a little bit more mysterious, a little bit more um, unfamiliar, and yet that's where the joy is. Because as as we experience your love in our heart and in our soul. We're just affirmed that even in our brokenness, you are there with us and you want us to experience your love. And that as we abide in you, as we sink deeply into you and you into us, we bear much fruit and we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from the work that you will do below the line, God, we could do nothing. Nothing of benefit, nothing of worth, nothing over time. But, God, if we can sink deeply into you, you will do a work in our hearts and in our souls to make us more like Jesus. So I pray for these men that we would all become integrated in our following of Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because then and only then can we live out the second commandment, which is like the first, and that is to love our neighbor as ourself. Love of neighbor flows from an integrated love of God heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.